0: Thank you for listening to this podcast one production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Michael. Yeah. Michael
1: <laughs> Irvin podcast. You knew this was coming. Guess who? Oh. <laughs> we start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP Of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ben Golover of the Washington Post, and we hit on a lot of big topics. Of course, the Lakers winning the NBA championship and ending the Orlando bubble is a big point of discussion, but we actually start with the news of the day, which is Daryl Morey's departure in Houston as the general manager and Ty Lue being hired as the next head coach of the LA Clippers. Great conversation, touch a lot of things, and I recommend listening all the way to the end and for Ben's bubble experience. So there's a lot of great stuff here. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: My pleasure, Danny. Always great to chat with you, and I feel like our timing here is impeccable. We can uh, we could wrap up the bubble if you want, and we can talk about all sorts of moves. Daryl Morey's reign has ended in Houston. Ty Lue got the uh, the bump for the Clippers, and everything else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I will leave. I, I think we we both know the ground that we're going to cover, so I'm going to leave the first choice to you of where we start. Well, I actually think kind of
0: Daryl Morey's exit feels like fairly big news. I mean, biggest news so far of the offseason, I would say. I mean, he was there for so many years. I think he obviously had such a fundamental role in modern uh, executive craft um, in terms of you know what are you prioritizing when you're you're looking at your players how are you manipulating the salary cap. Um, how are you building around stars and then, you know, his willingness to just trade and trade and trade and trade and and not stick with, uh, you know, groups that weren't working. I think all of that has a major, major impact on his contemporaries. And then you throw on top, you know, the fallout from the China controversy, you know, a year later. I don't think it's a coincidence a year to the day after the, uh, the Hong Kong He decides to step down. And then you also have on top of that uh, another layer, which is the ramifications and repercussions for what does this mean for Houston going forward? How are they going to be able to put this thing back together? Or is that impossible? I, mean, I think all of those things are worth diving into
1: absolutely and it, it's so funny I mean I had a, a Kelly eco and I have been working on a collaborative piece for over a week now and it, it dropped at I think eight in the morning Pacific time and then this news happened at like 9:30 so you know how that can go sometimes but
0: <laughs> you got the 90 minute shelf life on the, it huh? the,
1: the 90 minute shelf life but I think a lot of it actually gets into what I think is one of the one of the other interesting wrinkles of this and and we'll get to a lot of what you talked about as well which so really what the crux of the the conversation that kelly and i had was i've been talking a fair amount about how i think the rockets are the in terms of roster personnel in the immediate they are the least flexible team in the league and the reason why is because of their salary structure i mean they have almost all of their money tied up in a few different guys all of whom are either too good or too expensive to really do something with and that meant that, like, I, I was kind of wondering out loud when D'Antoni, and this—that's really how this started—when D'Antoni decided to head elsewhere. Really, how different the Rockets would look under a new coach? And we know that coaches have a huge impact in the way teams play, the way the players see their role on the team, and everything else. But in my eyes, at least in the immediate, Harden, Westbrook, Covington, Tucker, probably Eric Gordon as well, more because it's hard to move him rather than that they don't want to, that all those guys are there. And there's this crazy thing about the Rockets where they only have one player making between, let's call it $2.5 million and $12 million for next season. <laughs> or sorry, they have two, Daniel House and P.J. Tucker. And, and so it's just this super weird structure. And so I was what I was thinking about as as soon as Maury stepped down is when you factor that in and the Tillman Fertit of it all, meaning guy who doesn't appear to be super willing to pay the luxury tax, if willing at all, and maybe has his hand in at period moments of time, we'll see who gets the head coaching job. That it's not the worst job in the league, especially because they have good talent right now. But in terms of like desirability as a general manager, it's so, like your ability to put the imprint on the team, your the flexibility that you have to mold them to your vision. Like, this actually isn't that desirable of a job. And Daryl Morey, his career warrants a desirable job. Look,
0: I I think it's actually... A below average to poor job at this point, solely because of the ownership situation there. I mean, if you look at where they were under Leslie Alexander to where they are now, it's night and day. I mean, the stability factor, the empowerment factor that they used to have in that front office, the willingness to explore, to take risks, to be creative, to spend when they need to spend, and all that. To me, all of those things have become question marks in Tillman I think a lot of his public comments and behavior have made things worse. And then uh, you know, it's not like Daryl Morey just suddenly became this horrible guy at trades, and he just, you know, backed his way into mysteriously the Russell Westbrook trade, which I view as one of the single worst trades uh, of the last 10 years. That's not a trade that he would do if left to himself. There's no way you're going to be c- able to convince me of that. And so I think that's a situation where, you know, the superstar was upset, the owner was putting pressure, and and they had to kind of make a regrettable decision. If you go back to last summer, I referred to that Westbrook trade as, you know, basically having a baby to try to save a bad marriage. And And I think, unfortunately, that usually does not work. It only makes things worse. And it does not surprise me at all that D'Antoni's gone, that Maury's gone, and that the futures of both Westbrook and James Harden are questionable right now I mean we don't know exactly how that's going to go Um, so I think it's a really tough you know job to step in as a coach for sure but also a really tough job to step into um, as a successor to Maury now I understand they're going to try to keep that thing internal which I think is actually smart um, because uh, you've got to have an established relationship and rapport with James Harden to a certain degree otherwise you're risking you know a potential trade request or something along those lines where he's just looking around and saying like what are we even doing here what's the point but I think uh, after a pretty long run where they could talk themselves either into being a list contenders or at least strong contenders you know like at the top of that second tier when I look at them going forward uh, into next season if they don't address their front line they're not even in the contender conversation like I don't I don't think the micro ball Approach will work uh, in a Western Conference dominated now by Anthony Davis. Like they have no matchup there. PJ Tucker played gamely for about three quarters in that playoff series, and then they just completely fell to pieces. So for me, they're already backsliding here for probably the third consecutive year, and I don't see a great way, given their salary cap situation that you've described, for them to get some sort of an Anthony Davis stop or a better option, and, and to kind of rebalance their their roster positionally. And so I think for those reasons, this could be just the beginning of the fireworks. You know, if there was a, a massive roster overhaul where they're shedding salary, um it, it wouldn't shock me. And I'd also say this, don't forget, I mean Tillman Fertito went to the White House basically. I mean he had that meeting with President Trump where he's asking for bailout money during the pandemic. And he specifically mentioned, you know, the the, the amount of money he was paying his two superstars, 40 plus million dollars for James Harden and Russell Westbrook. That was a tell to me. I mean, he's obviously feeling the pinch financially, but uh, to be discussing those kinds of things so openly, so brazenly, and in some cases, I would say disrespectfully, I think if you're an owner, uh, that's not how superstars want to be treated and kind of talked about in the NBA. Uh, That's why I see I I could see more fireworks coming.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And another factor in all of this is that both. Harden and Westbrook are thirty-one. Westbrook will turn thirty-two before the start of next season, and that becomes a problem too. When I like to think of it as just kind of like the age curve, and where is your team relative relative to that? And Harden and Westbrook, the while they're both still incredibly talented, and it's worth remembering that when Westbrook was healthy this year, he actually played extremely well. It seemed like things worked out worked out for him within within D'Antoni's scheme, especially once they clarified the roster. Let's say, but when you have You're two stars in their 30s, one of whom is more dependent on athleticism than the other, but it matters for both of them. And then P.J. Tucker is in his mid-30s, getting closer to his late 30s. Eric Gordon's not getting any younger. And so one of Houston's big problems, and this was true when they had Chris Paul as well, is that the passage of time won't help them. And the most Striking part about where the Rockets are now, and I'm sure some will blame Maury. I personally tie it more to having to duck the luxury tax while being an expensive team because they sacrificed, you know, first round picks to offload money over the last couple of years. Is that the Rockets don't have young talent and they're pretty weak on what I call sweeteners, you know, like future draft picks and everything like that. And some of that is from the Westbrook Paul trade, and some of that is just by giving up resources in order to shed money in recent years. They've they've had to give to give away some of that, and I use the phrase "had to" because if ownership gives you that directive, then it's there. I don't think Fertitta had to do that; he chose to, and that is his right. Even though I'm, I also have the right to criticize him for it, as I have publicly since it happened. And I think that for the Rockets, yeah. So you have this weird thing where they're expensive, they're not old, and they are good, so it's not the worst place to be, but I think so I think that your your theory of the case is right and I think that there is a distinct chance that that overhaul happens. My instinct is that it happens, but it's a year away. That they basically give this group, they're very inflexible, give this group another year and then at that point, you know, maybe it's another second round exit, maybe it's a first round exit. And just go, well, okay, we gave it a shot, and now now Raphael Stone or however their front office is going to be organized at that point, you get to do something more with this because at that point Harden and Westbrook only have two years left on their contracts. Maybe Harden only won if he declines that player option. Gordon's getting closer to being done, all that all that sort of stuff. So it, that's again why it's not that desirable job is it's going to take some time now one interesting thing is we'll see how involved the new the new really structured front office is in terms of hiring a head coach because like fi- like having your general manager leave midway through a coaching search is definitely a little bit different and so we'll see how how that affects the power dynamic as well
0: For sure. Well, I think, first of all, your your point on do you wait a year before you make the trades is a good one. It's going to be significantly easier to trade Westbrook in a year than it is right now. Right. I mean, that's a very tough contract to trade i also think it's important to note he did play well before the injury you're right but if daryl morey actually believed that that was the player he was going to have right that they could count on that level of player throughout the course of a regular season and a playoffs are we sure he steps away are we sure he resigns at this point um i'm not sure he, he does i to me this just feels like a classic situation where the writing is on the wall where they kind of realize, look, for Mori, get out now while your reputation is good. Like if the team happens to miss the playoffs next year, they're an eight seed and they go out in a quick first round, you know, something like what happened to Philadelphia this year, um, you know, that is going to wind up being on your reputation if you leave now. Uh, you kind of uh, avoid some of that. I also want to just have a quick follow up point for you, which I think you'll you'll enjoy. Uh, I know you guys, uh, both you and, and some of the other podcast partners have been pretty hard on Tillman not paying the luxury tax over the years. And I have talked to Daryl Morey in interviews about that. And I will say he always defended Tillman and the trades and why they were doing it and when they just happened to get below the luxury tax very aggressively. And it was a classic case of like protesting too much, right? Yeah. It was clear that it was a situation where like, look, he had his directives and he didn't want his owner. to He was very sensitive to that particular criticism of his owner. He didn't want that storyline and narrative to develop and really take hold. So he would protest it at all at every possible turn, every time I brought that up with him. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that that, you know, in hindsight is a, you know, it is a fair read on their ownership group. And I think we're going to see it here going forward, too. Um, look, and this guy's taken out, he even told us how much money he's taking out at crazy interest rates and all that during the pandemic. I mean, anytime you're doing that, your financial situation gets worse before it gets better if you're, um, you know, absorbing those kinds of crazy um, financial uh, risks as he has. So uh, to me, I think everything is on the table this summer. I agree with your assessment of, you know, how desirable is this job, uh, you know, going forward. I think it's a really tough, uh, tough one. And I think the, the biggest question mark here. Is James Harden going to reach the same conclusion that Daryl Morey did, which is – Hey, wait a minute! You know the writing is on the wall. We don't have enough talent. We don't match up very well with the best team. We can't talk ourselves to being, you know, one trade away, which is, you know, what his message was coming out of the playoffs. I mean, Harden said that we're one piece away. I don't believe they're one piece away unless that piece is Giannis, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what what piece are we talking about that's going to get them up on the Lakers level? And so, does he have sort of a come to Jesus moment this off where it's like, wait a minute? You know, I've loved everything about Houston. I've gotten a chance to be the man. Obviously, I'm comfortable in Texas. There's the tag situation you know everything's built around you you're the face of the organization and everything else does that package still uh, appeal to him or does he start to think uh, you know maybe differently there I could see him definitely having one more year of patience with this group and, and maybe not denial, but being able to talk himself into it. Uh, but to me, this is about to get really dark for them. And I, and I also worry if you have an inexperienced front office, if you don't have a very top coaching candidate going forward, if you do wind up having to, you know, kind of sell low on Westbrook and or Harden I mean this could be a a franchise that's had a really long track record of consistent winning going back 20 or 30 years you know all the way to the maybe even longer all the way to the 80s um, that could be in for some really tough times here maybe not this coming season uh, but not too far down the road
1: yeah I I think that all that's really really prescient and I think that with the Maury moves recently, like the big scale stuff, not only the Westbrook trade, but also giving up the resources that they did for Robert Covington. There are a couple of different explanations for that. And it's very probable that we never get a straight answer on it just because not not as a criticism of the fourth the, the forthworthiness or whatever of, the, of any person involved, but just because there's a lot of different reasons. But the, it could be ownership putting it like, hey, we need to be the best team we can this year. Or it could be, this isn't working. Do something else. Or it could just be Maury saying we need to change something. Maybe there's something in all the relationships and, and need to make a jump. I agree with you, and we talked about it. I think you and I recorded when I was in Colorado after the uh, the Westbrook Harden trade, and you, you, that might have been one of the first times you used that analogy. And it's not only that they did the Harden for Westbrook trade. It was that they basically – that they treated Westbrook as the dramatically better player and gave up a ton of other additional assets, and Westbrook has a longer contract. now. Worse or not depends on whether you think Westbrook and Paul are worth the money they get. But that is another factor. Is basically, they, these were win-now moves and really risky. And as you brought up, you, I mean, it could have been Fertitta or somebody else in the organization just saying, hey, we need to, to get better. Maybe they think that would sell more tickets. Or maybe there was some rift between Paul and Harden that needed, to be, that needed to be done, but they didn't want to get worse. All sorts of different explanations for it. But all of those moves to me there's this idea of not having to feel the consequences and so like the most ext- one of the more extreme versions of this might be the the Sacramento Kings thing with, with I mean it was just always struck me as so funny with with Scott Perry not that he was the lead decision maker there but they sign all these veterans to bad contracts Perry like Perry ends up getting the same job with the Knicks and then as all those contracts blow up he's already gone and right. there are various examples of that and so i i'm not saying that Maury was I I can't attribute malice or, you know, like a short-sightedness to this because you don't know why these trades happened, but... I think there might have been more pulling in the same direction or, or just like there were pulls in different directions, but one side had had way more weight behind it than the other. And so, yeah, that makes the the Rockets' job. I think it is going to get dark and it's going to take a long time for it to get significantly better too, because remember, as long as James Harden is there, they're going to be good enough that they can't bottom out. Like that, that's the, the easiest thing for fans to, to talk about is, oh, he just... just Strip it down to the studs and and do it over again. The Rockets are too good for that. Like they're 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 not going to be in that stage for a long time. But getting back to Harden, I think that. Well, can, can I
0: push back sure. there? I mean, look, they're not going to be a 12 seed, right? But I can absolutely see a scenario where you don't have. Uh, as tight of a relationship as developed between Harden and D'Antoni right maybe Westbrook is missing a little bit of time maybe those guys who have been putting up with just shooting threes in the corner for four years start to get a little bit bored with that right I mean we already start to see some fractures in the playoff series I mean look no further than the Daniel House situation I mean him not being bought into the team concept um, and getting himself kicked out of the bubble like there's definitely been situations just internally where, uh, you know, the Rockets don't look like best friends aren't completely on the same page. And as great as Harden is, if they're not executing their offense on the high level, they don't have all five guys bought into this idea of Harden gets to be the man and they have to be supporting pieces. Um, that can get dark, right? Yeah. And also the defensive commitment part is a huge deal too. Um, Harden has been more locked in these last couple of years. Not that he's a huge stopper, but we've also seen what happens when his mind drifts, right? Where he just decides, you know what? I'm, I'm a one-way player. I, I only want to uh, go out there and get my numbers. I'm not going to be making the extra rotation, those kinds of things, right? So to me, I think, I mean, just my sense of that Rockets team going out of the, uh, the second round, it was kind of a humiliated team, right? It was a humbled team team it was a team that it kind of blew up in their face and they had to just kind of reckon with the fact that they weren't good enough. It was obviously a frustrated Russell Westbrook because of his health issues. So I would actually set that part aside. But I think that D'Antoni is probably not getting enough credit for the difficulty of managing the personalities. And just the, the leadership dynamics there in Houston where so many guys just have to be completely subservient in the offense to Harden, right? Uh, keeping all those people bought in is no guarantee. And I, whoever they hire as coach, that's going to be a huge challenge. So... Again, I mean, I could see them in a situation where they look like, you know, uh, say like Damian Lillard and some of the uh, injured Blazers teams, right, where they're kind of hovering around that playoff bubble eight, nine, because, you know, they've got one guy who could do it all, but a lot of other guys who aren't. All on the same page. I mean, I think that's a fairly realistic scenario for next year, um, largely be, not because of pure basketball talent on paper. Right. Uh, but just because of are they are they aligned? Are they all on the same team? Do they feel completely bought into a vision? Do, are they playing with hope? Right. And they have had hope these last couple of years. They could always talk themselves into this idea that we're the biggest threat to the Warriors or we have this new micro ball approach that can like, you know, throw everybody for a loop. They had clear identity. They had a clear purpose. They did have that top end talent, and I think some of those things are going to be damaged here going forward.
1: Yeah, I, I think we're. It's more of a semantic thing. I, what I was talking about more is that if you have Harden, you're not going to be one of the ten worst teams in the league, rather than
0: oh, for sure, one of the for sure. Best,
1: and 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 it gets in there. So another part of this that when we you were talking about the darkness moving forward, part of the genius of the Oklahoma City part of the Westbrook trade, was (laughs) when they pushed for draft picks, they weren't doing the first allowed selection. They weren't really focusing on that. Remember that the picks that they get that are lightly protected are in 2024 a swap in 25 and then the first in 2026. They do have a swap in 21 as well, but really the the resources there are focused on the later part of that for the Rockets. And there was I mean just due to the sheer factor of Harden and Westbrook getting older, neither of those guys is actually under contract for the 23-24 season. Entirely possible that one or both of them end up being under contract for the Rockets. But now you have to upgrade the value of those picks because we don't know how the new front office is going to work. But Daryl Morey, I think of as one of the better general managers in the entire league. So now you have unsure GM, unsure coach, still have the roster uncertainty, and you don't have – they don't have a general manager that is potentially – going to do, you know, to maximize within the constraints that they have possible that 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 stone or whoever kind of has the head roll does. We don't know that yet, but uncertainty is very different in that circumstance. And so I think Sam Presty is sitting pretty right now and it will take a long time, but it gets into something that I think you and I talked about he, talked about back then, which is it's good to have diversity in your portfolio. And so for Oklahoma City, I think they're going to go into the darkness too. But it's nice to have a little bit of a diversified portfolio. So that in case the Thunder get better more quickly than anticipated around Shea and wherever else this is going... Then okay, you still have some picks owed, but for from other for other teams.
0: No, this has Celtics Nets potential written all over it. I mean, I have no idea how Sam Presti was not the executive of the year. I mean, that is one of the worst votes that I have ever seen because not only did he do this to Houston, but he did virtually the same thing to the LA Clippers in the same summer. And they wound up making the playoffs and, and nearly knocking out the Rockets in the, uh, in the first round. I mean, it's just inexplicable. I wonder, should the media be the ones voting on executive of the, of the year going forward? Um, well, uh, you
1: know, so I'll, I'll push back a little bit. I had Presty 2 and Frank 1. And the reason why is because building a team like that out of whole cloth is genuinely impressive. You know, like they, Kawhi Leonard, finals MVP. They didn't, have, they didn't have to give up anything to get him other than all they gave up to get Paul George. It's To me, it was a two-person race. I, I just thought that, you know, they selling high is impressive, but building a championship contender with basically a little bit of cap space was and, and being able to keep Pat Beverly, being able to keep some of their other good players and their own first-run pick, which became Marcus Morris. Now, it didn't work out super well relative to expectations, but yeah, I mean, but that's not to undersell the job the press did. I, mean, I think it was incredible, and Oklahoma City is in a very good place long-term. Oh,
0: history is going to smile on that
1: deal. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, look, and, I think gonna, and I think
0: you're right. It's it's going to age like fine wine. I mean, if, if it already looked so good in year one, and it was not supposed to look good in year one, it was supposed to be pretty ugly in year one because you're trading with your two franchise players and you've been backed into a corner and to have to do it, um, it's going to age so well. And those picks that you're mentioning could be excellent. I mean, I think that that's right in the scenario where, like, if they've uh, if they've moved on from Harden, right, and they've already traded Westbrook, and you're probably not going to get a stop back for Westbrook and you, the package for Harden will be very interesting to see what they're able to come up with at that point, say two years down the road. That could be a really, really dark spot for that franchise and to be f- sacrificing draft picks at that point is going to be absolutely brutal. I mean, it could be a really rough stretch and I think, uh, you know, again, Presti's just going to be sitting pretty, you know, collecting those assets. So um,
1: there is, there is yeah. one weird part of the protection there that could end up burning Oklahoma city. I'm sure Presty wasn't as focused on that as he was the assets is that if, Houston ends up with a top four pick in either of those years, and that could be because they 're one of the four worst teams or because lottery you know the lottery odds as of right now are more flat, so maybe they're the eighth worst team and jump into the top four then Oklahoma City just gets seconds that's that 's the way this Ooh. works out so there is a <laughs> chance that it kind of like that it, it ends up it ends up burning them a little bit there's this, a weird parallel though there to um what Nate and I called the Lakings pick, which was the pick that was either going to be the which was in the Markel Fultz trade. Which was either going to be, actually, yeah, it's been in a couple of different trades, but basically it was either going to be a Lakers pick or that Kings pick. And it ended up being that the Lakers jumped in the lottery twice, and then the Kings ended up being pretty good that year that it conveyed. So that pick wasn't as valuable as everybody thought it was going to be. But those, you know, I, that I feel
0: like you're, you're now guaranteeing that that's exactly what's going to happen. What a party favor. Like, what a, you know, like what a farewell gift to his organization if that's how it plays out for Daryl Morey.
1: Uh, So let's move on to the Clippers and Ty Lue gets the job. Doc Rivers made his way out and to Philadelphia already. And the Clippers job is one of the things that I find compelling about it. It's harder to evaluate for my purposes, but there is this challenge that for evaluation where a lot of what is most important for that Clippers job is personality management. And so I think Lou's going to be very good at that, but Kind of like the Nets job, with, which ended up going to Steve Nash, there, there are a lot of different components of it. Many of, many of them will not be public, at least not right now. Right.
0: Well, I think, first of all, it was the best job on the market because you had Ballmer's uh, pocketbook. I'm not sure we've seen terms yet. But the full five years, that's probably coming in at a very big number, and that makes it super-duper desirable. And so to me, when we're hearing this back and forth, Ty Lu is interested in Houston. Ty Lu is uh, interviewing with the Clippers. I never really thought Tillman was going to be in a situation to lure him away from Ballmer. You know, it's just like, that's, that's not how that's going to play out. So I think that, number one, that's a major factor here. And I think as a coach and as a coach's agent, you're willing to take on some of those challenges, whether it's the personalities, reworking the locker room, bringing guys together or potentially overseeing a little bit of a roster overhaul here. I mean, I think if I'm the Clippers, I think it's time to be done with Lou Williams. I think it's time to prepare for the possibility that you don't keep Montrezl Harrell. Obviously, you want to, uh, but it's, it's possible that he goes. And so you've got a little bit of work to do. You're maybe not quite as loaded Uh, top to bottom as you were this year so i think if you're a coach you have to factor things like that in but it's still a plum job you've got two really really good uh, premier players you've got an mvp candidate with kawhi leonard uh who by the way held up physically very well this season right i mean their approach to managing his minutes worked he was in the mvp conversation um, well at least in the balloting I, I, he didn't get a lot of buzz for it but uh, you know, he played like that all year long he led a winning team and uh, and so I think you've got a, a nice foundation of talent and you've got some other younger pieces that are coming up um, whether it's Landry Shamid and, and other pieces like that so um, very desirable job but also lots of pressure I think that's the trickiest part here is that um, you know coming out of the playoff loss and having Paul George say well it wasn't necessarily championship or bust I promise you there is Going to be a Zoom call where Steve Ballmer is letting everyone know, guys. If there was any confusion about last year, this year is championship or bust, and every year going forward that we have Kawhi Leonard is championship or bust. I'm spending all the money that I possibly can to ensure that we're a championship team. I paid two billion for the Clippers. I paid uh, you know a billion plus for the new arena that's going up. I paid four hundred million in cash to James Dolan to get rid of the Forum so that I could continue to build the arena in Inglewood. Um, I've been upgrading the practice facility. I paid Doc Rivers to go away. I've uh, got the biggest front office in the league. I've got all the medical staff people you could ever want. Like, there is going to be no question now about what the the, um – the expectations are. And for a coach, that's a tough spot to be in, you know, as we saw with Doc, like if you come out of a series with some legitimate explanations for what went wrong, um, you know, they come off like excuses and Ballmer does not want to hear excuses. So um, I think it's going to be a little bit of a volatile situation. Uh, They do have to kind of get everybody back onto the same page. I, I think that the reports of kind of soft rifts below the surface um, are very hard to ignore based on how they played when the pressure turned up Uh, i know you probably heard jared dudley say uh on a podcast recently that the clippers didn't want to be there in the bubble that was my take halfway through that denver series you know they basically quit you know they didn't have that next gear to say yes we do want this relationship uh, or sorry this uh This matchup or this showdown with the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals, like, we're cool with going home early. And um, they kind of left with their tails between their legs after talking an awful lot of trash. So. I think, um, you know, Ty Lue is a very personable guy. I do think he relates very well with players. He's shown the ability to manage Kyrie Irving, which is like the ultimate, you know, get thrown into the deep water, end of the pool, uh, you know, type of uh, challenge. And so I think it, it made sense on a lot of different levels. And they needed a new voice, too. I mean, Doc was there for a long time. I think he has the tendency to overshadow his players a little bit because he's so quotable. He's so friendly with the media. I think that Ty Lue is is not that guy. You know, he's, um, he's direct. He's He's friendly, but you know he's not going to be you know making these grand sweeping declarations in the media and. Uh, it it becomes a little bit more of a team defined by its players rather than a team defined by a guy who was coach and and for a while their president too so kind of makes all the sense in the world not super surprising and I didn't see a better option out there for the Clippers I don't know if you did but it it just kind of it all lined up to me
1: I think that Lou makes a ton of sense especially when you're melding the the tactical and the emotional and I think that Lou has had some big challenges there he did that in Cleveland pretty well coming after David Blatt and I think that Lou is Lou is a completely logical hire for selfish reasons. I thought that D'Antoni, just to see what he would do with that team, would have been fascinating. And then my crazy pipe dream was was Popovich, like just to see what could happen there. Though oh. I don't think that I don't think that was ever going to happen. But both of those had had some real challenges. But yeah, I think Lou is is a very good hire. And you brought up the idea of. What basically like what the focal point of this team is, and I think that there is a very interesting question beyond Tai Lu. This is probably more on Lawrence Frank and to a lesser extent C. Ballmer about how much do they want to shift this to a George Leonard team. Part of why I was so enthusiastic about the job that Lawrence Frank did was that they were able to keep a lot of these talented support players that I thought could have meshed reasonably well. But it sounds like from some of the reporting that's out there and just kind of intuition that there is a little bit of an old guard, new guard situation. And also you think about the Clippers transitioning, you know, they were ideally a title contender during the Lob City era, but then that fell apart due to injuries and trades and everything like that. And then they were more in the like happy to be there camp. And I think that Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell and in maybe certain circumstances, Patrick Beverly, but I think he can fit reasonably well with this team. Williams and Harrell, in particular, they aren't a great fit as members of a closing five on a championship contender. Like they, Their limitations are just too pronounced. And the playoffs are more, in my opinion, they're about strengths too, but the they're about weaknesses. And I think that you know this has come up with various players, whether it's DeMar DeRozan or all the various limited players we've seen in, in the playoffs over the last few years, is that Those are a big challenge. And so it's a lot of times it's does the benefit outweigh the cost? And when you have Paul George and you have Kawhi Leonard, Lou Williams doesn't as much do offensively. He's still, even if he was a little bit better in the bubble defensively, still not good. And Harold's largely the same problem. It's that he's not stable enough defensively and the best talent can neutralize some of what he does offensively. Not that the bubble was representative of what I expect Montrose Harold to be moving forward. So. Using that and potentially moving on from one or both of those guys, Harrell's more straightforward because he's a free agent, and then Lou Williams, he'd be easy to trade at eight million dollars. There, there are absolutely teams that would be interested in him. So I'm, I'm wondering as you kind of are as. How much does this become a Kawhi PG team, especially when you consider that both of those guys could be unrestricted free agents in 2021, and I honestly expect both of them to be just because that makes sense. That doesn't mean they're leaving. I, 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 don't, I don't expect that for either, since in many ways they chose to be there. Kawhi Leonard actually did, and Paul George, it seems like he at least was was good with it. But it is a possibility that the front office has to consider.
0: Yeah, I think that they've got to prepare for it because, again, you've got the richest owner who bent over backwards to get both those guys there, right? He's already paid this huge price. I mean, that's the one downside of being the richest owner in pro sports is everyone's always going to be angling for a raise or a new deal or a better deal because they know you can handle it, right? So. I mean, I think they've got to be preparing for that. I mean, that's why they're under the gun and why the pressure is just going to be so monstrous this coming season. And I think that they will be dissected this year in a way that they weren't last year because there was a lot of honeymoon vibes to that Clippers team. And I was right there with it. I mean, I picked them to win the title. I thought that with Kawhi. Um, You know, potentially, you know, entering the season as the best player in the league with them playing a very modern style where they could, you know, get five scoring threats on the court at all times, where they could spread things out, where they had the versatility, um, you know, from a perimeter defense standpoint. They checked an awful lot of boxes, but... Um, they didn't ever put together the chemistry. They didn't ever put together the co- cohesion. They're not going to be changing the major key player personality stuff. So I think Kawhi and Paul George definitely need to come together as a duo more than they did this past season. I mean, to me, the, the biggest difference between the Lakers and the Clippers or the most important difference is that LeBron and Anthony Davis genuinely seem to like love each other and make each other a lot better on the court. And they're in sync off the court and they're buddies And they're able to hold each other accountable in positive ways, even if it means yelling at each other. And that marriage or partnership has worked perfectly over the last 12 months. And Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, they still feel a little bit like strangers on and off the court. Um, You know, I I attribute a lot of that to Kawhi Leonard. I mean, he's still a very difficult person to read. Um, You know, he doesn't let a lot of people close. We don't see him interacting, you know, like affectionately with his teammates hardly at all. Um, You know, covering that team over the course of the year um, in Los Angeles. And so I think that's sort of where it starts, right? Those two guys have to be a, a stronger duo that make each other better and that set a higher standard on a defensive standpoint. I don't think the Clippers lived up to their defensive uh, expectations this year, especially in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Philly, where we thought they were going to be the best defense in the league. And, and they just never really got there consistently, despite all those great individual defenders. So uh, I think those are some of the issues that they're going to have to look at. But, uh, you know, you also don't want to overreact too much. I mean, that was an absolutely insane ending to their season. Um, they are going to be coming in with a new leadership personality, a guy who's going to be skilled in putting it back together in Lu And they do still have a lot of talent. So I think they're going to be one of the top contenders in the Western Conference. But I also think they're going to have a lot more to prove next season. And there's going to be a lot more people you know, looking for you know small fissures. Like, for example, that report about their locker room, I think that came out in December. Where you know, are these guys all on the same page? Are the superstars getting preferential treatment? A lot of that got swept under the rug this year because people just thought, hey, it's their first year together. They're the, the title favorite. Just kind of let that, you know, uh, you know, don't don't worry too much about that. Give them the benefit of the doubt. I think after you go out in a three-one uh, fashion like they did, you have squandered the benefit of the doubt going forward. Now everybody's going to be digging in deep and. We'll We'll see if they're prepared for that.
1: Yeah, especially because I don't think there's going to be as much digging into drama and the other side of Staples Center because it seems like things are all things are all good right there. As that oh, Danny,
0: would... it's it's role reversal, right? I mean, the Lakers were like the most dysfunctional organization for like five straight years with Magic and Luke Walton and all these different things, and now is the Clippers back to sort of having that uh, that role?
1: Yeah, it, it really is, and that is uh, I mean one of the fascinating questions that I'm grappling with right now is not the long-term ramifications of the, of the Lakers winning, but in some ways, kind of the short term, because we've seen teams throughout. And I mean, this, I mean, a great example of this was what happened with the Warriors and, and that some teams try to match up with that. Some teams try to load up but mostly they kind of shift in other directions. And the Lakers aren't, a, aren't the same kind of champion, partially because their best player is 35 turning 36 in a couple months but also because you know they're they're just they're they're not as deep and everything else but they are a very good team built around two ridiculously talented stars. And so I'm wondering how, whether we see like you brought up the idea of like the Rockets from bringing in a Davis stopper or at least a Davis slow downer. How aggressively do the other top contenders or teams that think of themselves as top contenders Perceive the Lakers versus all of the other threats, and it might be that they're kind of pulling in the same direction because we're seeing these dominant, bigger guys, you know, like AD and Giannis and LeBron and Kawhi Leonard. You know, like you you can defend those guys somewhat similarly. So whether the Lakers have those same ripple effects that other recent champions have, what do you think?
0: What would you do if you were the Clippers in terms of addressing this Anthony Davis question? Because that was actually another one that I kind of swept under the rug a little bit for them. I was like, look, I mean, Paul George and uh, Uh, and Kawhi Leonard match up better with LeBron than basically any other team in the league, right? So if you can neutralize him a little bit and just make Davis work, that's your formula for winning that series head-to-head. I think now we're looking back after Anthony Davis kind of blossomed in that playoff run as this matchup nightmare who just destroyed Portland Houston, Denver, and then Miami, just one after another. And you're saying, wait a minute, like you probably have to have a better option than like whoever, Jamichael Green or Morris or whoever else you're trying to throw into that spot. Um, of course, you're glad you have Zubak to play big against the Lakers' big lineup. What would you try to do if you were the Clippers to fortify your answers for Davis? Do you gamble that Paul George or Kawhi could spend some time on him? Do you just hope that you can get by with the 4s the you've got on hand? Do you try to... You know, move Lou Williams and maybe package some other assets or something to to get another player into that spot because I feel like that's a critical matchup. If the Clippers do want to get over the hump, they're going to have to go through the Lakers, and I'm not sure they have a good enough answer for Anthony Davis right now.
1: It might actually be similar to the strategy I argued, which Miami did not do back in 2011 with Dirk, which is let him. You know, don't focus as much on stopping Anthony Davis as much as you focus on kind of slowing down everything else and thinking that Davis by himself won't kill you. And when a team can protect the defensive glass. I think that makes a big difference. Like we saw, what you know, like like what Davis can do in those circumstances, especially when the other team goes small. But the Clippers have they can have more size out there, and it's Zubats in particular, I think, could be very important. Montrezl Harrell, I think, is a big problem theoretically going up against Anthony Davis. I don't think he can do much on either end, except for maybe try to hit a couple of floaters. And so I, I think that you kind of it, it's experimentation and it's having different options. Because you're right, they won't. I don't think they'll have a perfect one. So then you have like let's say three different guys, and the prayer is that one of them works well enough. And if none of them do, then you go to a different approach. You kind of, in some ways, end up doing what the Nuggets handled with Kawhi, which was they didn't really have a great guy to do him one on one. Though I thought Jeremy Grant had a, had a better series than I expected defensively. But they threw multiple looks. They threw different guys. They they got it all weird. And remember that the Lakers, they have a lot of limited players in the rotation. Now, those limited players stepped up at different moments. Rondo had a far better playoffs than I anticipated. KCP definitely had his moments within the finals. And then other guys that depended on the game, Danny Green most notably. So that's the other way to do it is to like bring extra help and force Davis to be passer. But the other time that I think and this was a tactical mistake that I thought Miami made, and sometimes it was being a victim of circumstance, like a couple of weird fouls, was I wasn't super impressed with the Lakers' offensive process, process, not results, when Davis was out there without LeBron. And there were times when it worked because like the Iguadala hit Davis in the face and a few other like weird foul calls. I think that was in game three. Um, and, and But I think that the overall idea of like needing somebody who can set him up, and that probably ends up being Rondo next year, trying to make more hay in those minutes could be a way to do it.
0: Yeah, look, I mean their process would have been really jacked up if they didn't have just this unreal resuscitation from Rajon Rondo, right? Yes. I mean it could have been an awful lot worse and than- Really, really hard to watch. So um, I'm with you on that. And I do think that, I mean, the Lakers are coming right now off of this playoffs looking as like unbeatable as we could possibly imagine for a lot of the circumstantial reasons of the bubble, right? Like they were able to catch the Blazers. Lillard got injured at the end of the series. Um, You know, Will Barton's not out there for Denver. Westbrook's injured. Um, You know, Daniel House gets sent home. Jamal Murray gets banged up at the end of the Western Conference Finals, and then Dragic is injured. Um, you know, Bam is not himself. Jimmy's, you know, on his last legs um at, at times during that series. So, you know, they look as unbeatable and as, you know, uh, invincible as they're ever going to look and, you know, it's fair to expect LeBron comes back to earth just a little bit. It's fair to expect that some of those role players who played amazing minutes for them who are a little bit older, um uh, maybe they're not quite as amazing next year, especially if there's travel throughout the playoffs and you're going to road games and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I'm not trying to set the Lakers up as like a Goliath. The Clippers are never going to be able to scale. I'm really just saying they might need a better answer than the one they've got there. And that might be their top priority this offseason.
1: I want to jump briefly back to the Clippers because you are somebody who would appreciate this idea more than most, not only with your you know proximity to the L.A. teams, but also just because the way you think about things like me. Which is, I've posited that the Clippers might want to be a little bit more judicious about spending this offseason, even with Ballmer's checkbook and the win-now pressures, because of the idea that they could theoretically retool this team more aggressively in 2021. And what I mean by that is, I don't know exactly what Giannis is thinking. I don't know. Maybe he wants to go back to the Bucks. Maybe he's loyal to the organization, thinks that they're a championship contender. Maybe they win the 2021 title. Absolutely a possibility but let's say this next year doesn't work out as well as you hoped it could be that one of the two stars wants their way out or it could be that you want one of the stars to make their way out would you consider as the clippers especially when the lakers are inflexible they you know they're the champs their team is going to be largely it's going to stay the same moving forward for better not really for worse like that that's a good thing for the lakers And, you know, the Nets are the Nets. like basically they could be not only the only major market team with space, but the only major market team that's properly run with space. So would you consider maintaining flexibility, kind of hedging your bets in case it doesn't work out?
0: It's a fascinating question. I think practically speaking, I mean, it makes sense to me in theory, but I think practically speaking, the Clippers are in a situation where they have to dance with the girl that brung you. You know, it's like you major. You made your all-in bet on Kawhi. He's the person who you've built this entire thing around. You know, you you um, went out there and got Paul George for him, and I think that they need to be looking at it as Kawhi wanted to come to home to California. Um, Paul George has moved around a bunch. This is the first time that Kawhi has gotten a choice in, in sort of where he is, and he chose you. And he's messaged everything about wanting to be there for a while. And if you have Kawhi for the next five years, you should view that as five shots at a title. And so you need to do absolutely everything you possibly can to keep him happy. And I think you've got to make him feel like... He's the king of the show, entire show, right? So you have to keep kind of just catering to him, bending over backwards to him. And that's just sort of um, how you have to operate on a daily basis. So I'm not sure if you can, you know, maintain the flexibility kind of quietly and, and do that. But I think that the pressure is on so much, starting from Balmer, but also from Kawhi, too. I mean, he, he, he came home to win. He wants to win. He doesn't want to hear any talk about... Two years from now if he did they wouldn't have executed the paul george trade the same way that they did right i mean clearly that was a move intended to win now and only now right i mean w- without much consideration for tomorrow so Um, I think that they are in full speed ahead mode and I also feel like you know they're going to look back on this season and say you know the the title was there for the taking right I mean they um, not having to go through Giannis from the Eastern Conference the Clippers I think would have beaten the the heat in a a hypothetical matchup in the finals Um, they played the Lakers tough all season long even though it ended so poorly they can tell themselves they're not that far away and I think that their mentality is going to be okay what's the thing that we can do to make ourselves 10% better so that we can get over the hump, right? And uh, and make the most out of Kawhi's prime. I, I think that's going to be their mentality.
1: I think you're probably right. I, I It just intrigued me because the idea that I don't even necessarily know if Kawhi and Giannis, you know, fit together perfectly offensively, but holy crap, would that be amazing as a playoff combination? And then the idea that you could do so many different things around them, you know, you could have shooters, you, you would have an incredible defensive foundation and everything else when they're both activated, which I mean, Giannis is basically all the time. That's why he was defensive player of the year in the regular season. And Kawhi. Well, can't. look,
0: I'm I, I'm not rooting against it. If you're telling me I get to cover Giannis for 41 games a year in LA, I'm going to be excited about that yeah. no matter what, but uh, that's true. I, I, I don't know if I could see it.
1: Uh, so let's, let's get back to the bubble. I mean, that was, so I, I'm kind of. I guess the easiest way to do it is just to to kind of leave it to you in terms of because I think we want to talk a little bit about the experience on your end. We we also did a podcast on that before for those who are interested, and also your takeaways from it more on the court. So we're. I'll, I'll start it with you, and then I'll ask some kind of clarifying follow up questions as well.
0: Yeah, I would just say um, it was a really challenging three month run. Kind of no way around it. I think it was as tough as everybody says. I felt like I had it a little bit easier because I don't have kids. I felt really bad for everyone who had kids. Um, just being away from your family that's just a tough tough spot to be in um you know for me there was moments of like you know just exhaustion you know watching nine hours of games a day coming out of the arena lightheaded staying up until 3 4 a.m every single night seven nights a week throughout the playoffs i mean i think my proudest achievement danny was i didn't miss a single playoff game from the second round on and you know you think about that in the context of a normal playoff year i mean it'd be logistically impossible you would never be able to do it it probably won't happen again in my lifetime so i think just for me that's just a cool feather in my hat um i was very relieved when it was all over you know that championship celebration with the lakers was probably the most fun one i've covered out of the last 10 finals because it wasn't just that they were celebrating the title it was that they were celebrating the fact they get to go home and you probably heard danny green come down the hallway and yell you know i'm bleeping free i mean he's so excited that um, they all get to go home the next day, so you know just from that standpoint, um, you know, unforgettable. Uh, absolutely lived up to the idea of once in a lifetime. I was very thankful for how safe it felt throughout the entire experience. Um, you know, the daily coronavirus testing was like the ultimate privilege, provided this amazing peace of mind kind of the whole way through. The fact that they accomplished the whole thing with zero positive tests is unbelievable. Not something that I expected. If we go all the way back to June and July when we were first talking about this idea, I think ultimately that is kind of the legacy of the entire bubble this idea that if you have immense resources and you deploy them in good faith if you deploy them in line with scientific and medical recommendations really good things can happen and you can succeed as a business and you can put a lot of games on television and you can get some of that tv revenue back Um, and you can you know Provide yourself a little bit of a bridge until whenever your sport can get back to normal um, after the pandemic. So I guess those are some of my my kind of general big picture takeaways. And uh, I guess, you know, I've been home for a couple of days now. It feels great to be home. People have asked me, like, would you do it again? And and for me, the answer is, is still yes. I mean, I don't have a lot else going on. It was really fun. It was so cool to see all the, the, the best stars who were healthy anyways, um, all in the same place at the same time. Being able to go to games back to back to back where Giannis plays, then LeBron plays, then Luka plays. I mean, that's just ridiculous, you know. And, and uh, I think for somebody who's a diehard basketball fan, it was, you know, in a lot of ways kind of a dream come true. And I do think the bubble winds up, you know, In hindsight, it was for the diehards, right? Uh, You look at the television ratings, this was not, you know, Jordan at his prime bringing in all these casual fans. I mean, this was really uh, a marathon of basketball that force-fed, you know, diehard basketball fans as much hoops as they could handle for three months. And and it had a a pretty satisfying conclusion, I think, with the the historical aspects of of LeBron winning his fourth and the Lakers kind of completing their really long journey with the China scenario and and Kobe's death and, and everything else in between. So... Um, I'll never forget it. You know, I got to spend the next three months writing a book about it. So I won't be forgetting it anytime soon. I can promise you that. Uh, but I hope that your listeners and you enjoyed it as much as I did.
1: I really did. And especially once it became a more manageable workload, I, I really did, did appreciate it even more. I mean, I, at the beginning I was so thankful that there was actual basketball, you know, like I didn't, I didn't care that I was watching from ten thirty AM to 10 PM pac- Pacific time. And sometimes doing a live broadcast in the middle of that. But yeah, being able to watch wall to wall was really nice and be able to have folks and really pick up a lot. I mean, the bubble Suns and TJ Warren and Luca and, and just, and also getting to see legit basketball in a different setting. And so we'll have to find out over time how much of the bubble is repeatable, the shooting and some of the player performances, including Anthony Davis's offense, which is going to be really interesting to watch. And it doesn't, I mean, first of all, the Lakers are an unquestionably legitimate champion. They did benefit from some injury luck, but so does just about every champion. And I think that it's exciting to see where things go from here. And f- what you brought up in terms of the execution I think is is so important to take away and also remember the that you have all these invested parties that bought in and that the players by and large really did what they needed to do and they also were able to convey the messages for social justice. They were able to can, you know like really whatever whatever that was important to them to be able to have that out there as well to especially with the the, the voting ab- advocacy The voting advocacy that was the other one I was trying to think of thank you um and, and that's really impressive and so to be able to accomplish a lot of different goals at the same time while crowning a deserving champion is an immense accomplishment when you consider what is going on you can kind of outside the bubble around the same time and I'm for personal reasons. I'm incredibly thankful for it, but also like I'm incredibly impressed by the operation.
0: Oh, for sure. And I, and I wrote a long essay, Danny, I don't know if you got a chance to read it uh, for the Washington post about my final thoughts. And I, I would encourage all your listeners to read it because I kind of poured my heart, heart and soul into it. Um, but one of the points that I made was it was about the attention to detail, right? And the NBA league office is not some like 5,000 person operation, right? Um, uh, it's, it's they they run it a little bit like a small business. A lot of people have been there for a long time. They got a lot of lifer employees. Um, Adam S- uh, Silver, I think, in our modern parlance, keeps his circle tight. Right, uh, that phrase. I think that's sort of how they look at it. And. They were just all over it. I mean, they thought through all these different aspects of what the bubble would be like. Um, You know, pretty much everybody from the public relations staff at some point I interacted with, uh, whether it was for stories or at press conference or everything else. I mean, there was just a lot of visibility um, from their employees, a lot of hands on um, aspect to it. And then also just the kindness. You know, I think that they realized this was a trying circumstance and that they needed to be as optimistic and positive and upbeat as possible to try to get people through what was going to be a really long run and they did it. You know, in terms of just the logistics and and things, I mean, I would just point out they brought out a brand new court with all these video boards and this virtual fan technology and it all worked. Like pretty much every you know the rail camera, all these new um you know features that they brought out all functioned as expected. Um, you know, in terms of like our day to day lives, the testing program worked flawlessly. I got tested every single day, always got my results back when I was supposed to do that part work. Um, you know, you look at the health protocols in terms of wearing masks, they were following up on that very closely, um, you know, adjusting rules as they went. It was very orderly. And again, process uh, oriented, which, you know, you want to see if you're trying to take care of all the little details, you have to know what those details are. And they certainly did. And one example that always stuck out to me was, you know, the buses ran on time, right? I mean, we're we're going over there uh, to watch these games. And one time a bus skipped a stop and, and forgot to pick me up. And I was the only one there And so I was going to have to wait a half an hour and it was going to make me a little bit later for the game than I had hoped for. Their solution was to just call another charter bus that transports 60, 70 people, bring it over. Specifically for me, and take me over to the arena by myself in this giant charter bus, which was obviously like you know coronavirus safe, and the and the uh, the bus driver had been tested and all of that. So again, it's just the attention to detail where it's like, oh, if if there happens to be a minor mistake where a bus driver forgets to make a stop, well, we just bring in an extra bus because we have an extra bus ready to go. Um, you know, kind of coming down here and, and the daunting idea of living at Disney World for three months in in June. I think um, I would not have anticipated that level of attention to detail, but that was what the experience was, kind of uh, front, and back, side to side. I mean, they just they just had it nailed.
1: Well, something else you brought up in the piece was the the idea of of separation and isolation, and so you, like that came up in terms of the wildfires in your native Oregon, and, and the idea that you are kind of separate, and I know the players dealt with that too, and – that is a you know like yes you got to be able to see all these amazing games in per person you didn't miss a game of second round on that's amazing but there were all these other challenges that when you think about everything else that we're uh, that that all of us are dealing with now they they I'm sure at certain moments those were overwhelming.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, it was a real, real grind. There's no way around it. LeBron had the, kind of the quote of the entire bubble when he looked around and said, "I." I know there's not a single person here who hasn't thought about going home. And, um, you know, everyone who, who heard him say that in the room just started nodding. I mean, they were kind of everybody was on the same page. It was pretty tough. I mean, I think for me, I spent a lot of time preparing mentally for what could happen. I felt very thankful that there was not any family crises that happened when I was in the bubble Um, you know some people lost family members and had to go to funerals and they had to choose do I go to the funeral and leave the bubble or do I stay here and work right because they weren't going to be able to come back I mean what an impossible choice to be in especially as a professional when you're feeling this huge obligation to be down there your company spent all this money to send you there I mean just a very very tricky spot so I was obviously grateful that I never had to, to face that kind of decision but I saw people do it um, The loneliness kicked in for a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, it was just kind of a fact of life. Um, you know, it's a situation where, you know, I went months basically without touching another human being other than a fist bump or an elbow tap, uh, you know, f- because that was just the protocols. And, and so that uh, that certainly is strange and different even compared to what most people's quarantine life uh, would be like. Um, yeah, it definitely got to you as a mind game for sure. I think ultimately like what kind of kept me going through it was that the basketball was awesome, right? And we saw high-level performances from so many guys. LeBron, Anthony Davis, Jamal Murray, Jimmy Butler, uh, you know, the Boston Celtics at that time played some great basketball. So did the Toronto Raptors. Um, you go right down the list. I mean, there were so many good stories. Even the the guys who we probably have forgotten about by now, you know, the John Morants and the Damian Lillards of the world and the and the Devin bookers and the amazing eight no sons of the world early on in the bubble i mean all those were just phenomenal basketball stories so for me the main strategy was just stay as busy as possible you know go to as many games as you can write as much as you can podcast as much as you can and eventually it will be time to go home i will say though once you get close to the ending everybody was counting the days right and when the lakers they don't get the sweep and then they drop game five i mean i can't tell you how many people were heartbroken after that game five because people just wanted to go home I'm sure the players felt the same way. Uh, And that's why you had that big release in game six. And, you know, when LeBron James is coming around and spraying you with champagne, it's like, yeah, you know, I didn't win the title, but I do get to go home. So I'm sharing in your joy here a little bit.
1: Yeah, that is that is definitely a different part of the experience. And I'm fortunate enough to have been in the locker room for a few of those as well, but didn't have that additional element to it, of course, which which shaped everything about those three months. One other one last question before I let you go. What's going to happen to the Lego Lamborghini?
0: It's home. It's in one piece. It is uh it is displayed on my television stand so underneath my TV which I basically never watch. I almost do everything on the iPad, but uh it made it home. I had to bubble wrap it. <laughs> In a, a giant box, and it cost me way too much to ship that thing. But it uh, it made it home in one piece. And I'll actually say this: I got myself the uh, the Lego Bugatti, so that's going to be carrying me here through the book writing process. So you know, every time I write a chapter, I'm going to get to do a little bit more on the uh, on the Bugatti, and that's how I'm going to spend my next couple months here in uh, in quarantine.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much
0: for taking time, as always. My pleasure, Danny. Uh, I hope all is well with you and, and yours, and we'll
1: talk soon. Thanks again to Ben Golver for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at the Washington Post. You can also pre-order Bubble Ball. Uh, the Amazon link is in Ben's Twitter bio. I'm sure you can find it other great places, and I'm incredibly excited about that. You can also, of course, listen to the Greatest of All Talk podcast that he does with Andrew Sharp and his appearances on Open Floor. Love having Ben on. You can also follow him at Twitter, of course, at Ben Goliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R, and... Yeah, this is a point of transition. You could think about it that way. For the NBA, we are moving from live games to the off season, and as those of you who have been a part of this before know, that does not change the frequency or the volume of Real Jam Radio. I love the off season; it is a big part of what I do. So, I'll be doing more draft work. Also previewing the big decisions that teams have to make and then analyzing the decisions once they are made as Ben and I did with Maury and with Lou in this one and continue kind of moving in those directions. And also it opens up a little bit of flexibility to go in other directions should I want to. So I'm really looking forward to that. And the longer timeline it looks like between the draft and free agency will be fun because then I can give things time to breathe. I also probably won't have to make San Vecini push as hard because it, I know it can be crazy that I like... And I have him on like the night of the draft or something that will be potentially be different as well. So thank you so much to everybody who has been a part of this. This is not an ending or a beginning. It is just a continuation and a shift in phase for this. And that's why it's great to support the show by subscribing and downloading every episode, whether that's in Spotify or Apple podcasts or whatever you use because we will keep going and my guest availability gets a little bit more flexible so that means they can podcasts aren't going to be as rigid schedule wise but there will always be one every week and I love doing the show and I love having people on and the conversations that we get to have also word of mouth extremely important and leaving a rating leaving a review in the podcast player choosing is also very important great if it's Apple Podcasts, but it's valued everywhere really do appreciate that a lot going on in my neck of the woods as you would expect pieces coming out for the athletic and a flurry I basically have all of the offices season previews done. They are not yet all published, but they are basically all done. I have a couple of I's to dot and T's to cross on the last couple, partially waiting on potentially some coaching hires, but we'll see. Also, dunked on, still we're gonna we're doing the one public episode per week, and then we're doing subscriber content as well. We're five times a week most of the time. We'll shift down to a couple briefly at a couple moments in the offseason and in the lulls, but mostly we're gonna be five times a week. So that's dunked on prime. You can check that out. And hopefully this allows me to do more appearances other places. We'll see. I still have a lot on my plate and a lot of I also had a piece with Kelly Eco that came out today. I think I'm gonna be doing a lot more of that collaborative work because I genuinely love doing it, and I actually have a little bit of time for it now. So that's pretty exciting. So if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to share that with me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I will try to respond, but my promise is to read it because that matters to me. And, and I do that every time it goes into a separate place in my inbox. That is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.